Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Patrick Taylor. We're at Canis Feast in Carlton. August 5th, uh, 2021. Patrick, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for, uh, for asking me. Uh, first question, biggest one to get us started is why wine? Um, well, let's, uh, let's go back to that uh, meandering story that we, we were talking about <laughs> earlier. Um, uh, when I was a kid, I was always in the kitchen, um, have this, this love of food, and uh, at an early age, I thought I wanted to be a chef and I worked in kitchens for, for years, some of my earliest jobs. And um, I think by the time I, I graduated from high school, um, I had the realization that uh, maybe that wasn't a good career for me. And um, as much as I enjoy cooking, uh, I could sort of, you know, see that the scheduling and, and the pay and all those things were, were, were pretty grueling and maybe I didn't love it that much. And um, you know, I started thinking about, well, what do I want to do? You know, I want to go to college. You know, this is back in, in the 80s. And um, I, I really liked reading and I, I was interested in history. So I um, started, a, um, started an education in history. And I was um, three years into a history degree before I realized that that was also not what I wanted to do. Um, I was uh, waiting tables at the time and uh, there were three other gents there at the restaurant that already had their history degrees. <laughs> I thought, this is, doesn't bode well. Um, and uh, I dropped out of school. I actually, I still have the, the, the textbook, the, uh, the class that really made me, you know, second guess whether that was what I wanted to do. It's, it's about the driest history text you could ever imagine. It was a, um, of course, I was taken on history of the uh, ancient world and um, written by guys that were ancient and, um, and the, taught by a guy who was ancient and the, uh, you know, the papers you had to write were just as dry as could be. And um, I've always just kept that as a reminder. Um, but, uh, you know, so I, I dropped out of school. I was going to school full time and working full time and I dropped out of school and um, started brewing beer at home just kind of on a lark. You know, I had a little more time on my hands. I thought, you know, this would be fun. And uh, I, it was a nut brown ale. I, I took a, a class from, you know, some shop there and bought some books and, you know, read some things about, you know, how to do this. And, and the first batch of, of beer that I made was a nut brown ale. And I, I still remember after, you know, pitching the yeast, uh, the next morning when I saw the, the fermentation lock bubbling and um, I was just absolutely hooked at that point on fermentation. And um, I don't think I quite knew it just at that point, but uh, uh, I was living in Minneapolis, sort of a long circuitous route that I ended up there, but I wanted to be back on the West Coast. Uh, I had a bunch of friends from high school that were in Portland and Seattle. And um, I was familiar with a lot of the, you know, the beers from, you know, this region and um, decided to move to Portland 
uh, and you know drove back across country and um, you know started calling different breweries and um, talking to different people. You know, how did you end up there? Um, you know, if, if this is something I'm interested in, what do I do? And the, there's this tiny little tavern um, oh, down on the riverfront. It was a McMinimins tavern. I don't know if it's still there, but I, I was talking to one of the brewers there, and he said, "Well, you, you know, you could find a, a brewery and, and go wash barrels for you know two or three years and hope somebody notices you, you know, or you can go back to college and you know study biochemistry and, and you know because that's what a lot of this is." Um, and I thought, well, it'd be good to finish uh, my education, and so um, you know, went from uh, study of humanities to hard science, and uh, um, it's amazing how the things that you don't think you can do when you have something interesting enough to motivate you that you will persevere through, and then maybe realize, oh, you know, maybe I was not giving myself enough credit. Um, after I think my first term of you know, chemistry and, and physics and, and calculus, I suddenly got into this math and science type of thinking and um, found that I really enjoyed it and transferred down to uh, Oregon State University. I had heard um, from several different people about the program down there um, in brewing, um, but before I got into, you know, getting my paperwork uh, situated, uh, a friend of mine from high school called me up one day and said, "Hey, let's uh, let's go wine tasting." I'm like, "Okay, that sounds like fun." And uh, we drove down um, 99. This was in I don't know. This would have been in 1993, maybe 1994. Uh, 1994. Um, and our first stop was at Rex Hill. Uh, Lynn Pinnerash was the winemaker there at the time, and um, as we were kind of just looking around, Lynn Pinnerash walked by, and I, I don't remember how the conversation started. She said hello, wherever saw us looking, and, and we chatted very briefly. But uh, I, I, something had clicked, um, and we didn't get any further than that in our, our wine tasting that day. We bought a bottle and sat out in there little amphitheater area and um, and I really started thinking like wow maybe wine is more interesting to me and you know there's something about this idea that it's not so formulaic um, and there's this this collaborative thing between um, you know you and and mother nature mm -hmm. uh, you know uh, mother nature has a, a lot to say about how the wine turns out and you know as does uh, you know the piece of land that the fruit is growing on and there's something about that, that I guess that appealed to me there's a little bit of like unknown factor um, I thought like year to year would really keep you uh, interested mm -hmm. and um, and then I started meeting some other people I was living in Portland and um, a friend of a roommate uh, was had just finished her uh, uh, her master's degree, I think, down at Oregon State, and she was working with um, Carmo Vasconcelos, um, and you know, gave me her contact info. I have a, a distant relative; he's like a like a third cousin twice removed, or second cousin three times removed, or I don't know. But uh, uh, he's a winemaker uh, down in California, and 
um, I got in touch with him. Um, he invited me to come down. At the time, he was uh, he was the winemaker at um, Liberty Schools, and was also doing stuff because um, I, I think at the time that brand was owned by Opus, if I'm not mistaken. But he had friends at like Sutter Home and in you know ETS Labs and all these like you know institutions down there, and invited me to come down. Uh, put me up for the weekend, um, toured me around, went took samples out of the vineyard with him and you know tasted some blending trials with him. He introduced me to these people and I met another guy named um, Stephen Price uh, who uh, as it turns out he did his bachelor's, his master's and his PhD at Oregon State and um, he's um, he's been at ETS labs and um, does consulting and you know um, guy with a, a great deal of, of experience and perspective and um, when I met him um, I told him that I was more interested in fermentation than necessarily in, in farming and he said okay um, he said you know my experience has taught me that there's a lot of people in this industry that they know a lot about making wine but know very little about growing grapes or there's a lot of people that know great deal about growing grapes but don't know a lot about making wine and my advice to you would be if you want to go into the winemaking side you know focus on uh, educating yourself with the viticulture side um, you'll get plenty of, of learning and stuff like that uh, on the other end of things sort of on the job training um, and that was fantastic advice um, so I contacted um, Carmel Vasconcelos, and, and she didn't really have um, any undergrads, you know, in terms of like a, a tutorial program for undergrads. But she had this um, fantastic uh, lab and uh, the University Vineyard at the time, Woodhall Three, which is kind of in the Alpine uh, area down there in um, central or southern Willamette Valley, and um, you know, she said, "Yeah, I can," you know, you know. Put you to work here in the lab and you know you can help out with stuff like that but i still didn't know what i was going to do uh, academically and somehow i ended up hearing about this program that they still have down there called bio resource research that was a um a research-based degree for uh undergraduates um as the name implies uh research all around basically biological resources mm -hmm. Oregon State being a land-grant college, you know, there's a lot of focus on, you know, forestry and, you know, crop sciences and turf sciences and, and agriculture and horticulture. And so I ended up down there in the, the College of Ag and um, my um, research program that I um, was, was given from, from Carmo was uh, studying rootstock tolerance to low soil pH. And so, um, you know, Worked on that as an undergrad. Um, it ended up turning into um, um, a master's degree. You know, I, f I finished my undergrad program, which was very like um, well-rounded science-based. You know, I had to take all the physical sciences and, and um, you know, a great deal of you know biochemistry and um, microbiology and organic chemistry, all those things that you use in fermentation. Um, but I had fantastic. Um, exposure to crop sciences and you know nutrient cycling and plant water relations and all the things that you know are helpful um, in, in viticulture and you know plant physiology so really well-rounded education 
Um, it was pretty rigorous. Uh, I took a, for my uh, elective coursework, I ended up taking classes in like sensory analysis, you know, that I thought would be fun and useful. And, and just met a whole bunch of really neat people down there. And um, um, very fortunate to have been able to spend time with, uh, with those instructors and, and with Carmo and um, you know some of the other students uh, that were in the program and um, probably one of the best uh, times of my life was, was down there at university and uh, just a lot of learning and um, really enjoyed that. Um, finished my undergraduate work and Carmo said, well, I've got funding for this, this project if you want to continue it. It would have literally been harder to leave school than stay. And, um, so uh, it turned into a master's program, and um, which was really nice. I never really saw myself as getting a graduate degree, but once I got into that level of learning, you know, the the degree of critical thinking skills that you have to apply uh, just um, becomes so much more intense. And and as you know, somebody who now works in in the industry as opposed to in academia, uh, I feel like there's just kind of this benefit for me in, in my day-to-day -day work that came out of that, um, independent of just delaying having to go out in the real world. Um, but, uh, so, you know, I worked Harvest at a number of different places. I think, you know, when I was still doing um, um, my graduate work, um, I had a little bit more time during Harvest had access to university fruit and started, you know, making these small little five-gallon uh, batches of, of Pinot from the university vineyard and, you know, did that for a few years and, you know, year three kind of um, plucked up the courage to make a little bit more, made a barrel of Chardonnay and, um, you know, probably made some really awful wine, <laughs> but uh, it, it was great. It was fun. Um, and uh, you worked at Oh, uh, let's see, Benton Lane. I did a did a um, little bit of harvest work there, and um, and then before I defended my thesis, uh, I took a, a term off and went to Australia, and um, was was supposed to do harvest at Shandon. One of the other guys that was in the program, Michael McCauley, uh, he had a connection with Shandon because he had worked with them and. Um, uh, so I got to speak to some some of the folks there in Australia, uh, the Shandong location there, and they said, "Sure, come out. We'll you know put you to work. We'll house you, etc." Um, and I'm like, "Great! I'm going to leave early. I'm going to travel. You know, on my way there, make all these stops. Going to go to France." And um, so you know, I got to see some things along the way to Australia. But uh, on the way there, I was I was in France at the time. I was in in the Bordeaux region, staying with a a friend of uh, mine that I met uh, one summer um, was a research intern from France, and um, I got a call from Australia and said, "Oh, we're having trouble getting your visa. Maybe you can work on that." And I'm like, "Oh, I'm no longer in the U.S. That's going to be really hard." <laughs> and um, wasn't sure what I was going to do, um, uh, but I just, you know, just kind of traveled my way there with a layover in um, in Indonesia. And uh, while I was uh, in the air airport in London on my way to Indonesia, um, I ran into a friend of mine from Oregon State 
who was an Australian woman doing her master's degree at Oregon State. Just, I mean, they're in the Gatwick Airport and, you know, Kate Walls, you know, standing like five people in front of me. And um, just a really um, fortuitous thing. Long story short, we hung out in, Aust or, excuse me, in Indonesia for, uh, for a week or two. Um, and they said, don't worry, we'll connect you with a harvest job. And, um, you know, they put me to work and, you know, stayed with some friends of theirs and, and had just a fantastic experience there. I worked at a, um, um, at a winery called Nepenthe that was in um, South Australia. It was in the, uh, the Adelaide Hills. Um, I think Peter Lesky was the winemaker there at the time, but uh, really good folks. They were really very kind to me and, and had the time of my life. Went diving on the, you know, out in the Great Barrier Reef and uh, just a, a really um, fantastic time. Came back, um, finished my thesis, um, finished school and uh, Ended up um, working, you know, doing a bunch of like sort of volunteer work here and there at different wineries just to try and get some more experience. Um, there was a kind of interesting little tasting room place that Bishop Creek Cellars owned that was sort of in the, on the edge of the Pearl District. Um, people go in there and they, um, they had these wines and Rich Cushman was sort of the uh, consulting winemaker um, and I, I can't remember exactly where the fruit came from, but it was from Columbia Valley and they were, they were Bordelais varietals and they, they had like a barrel of each of them and people could come in and they could taste them and make their own blend and we would bottle it for them and they'd take it home. And I worked there for a short time. Um, uh, I worked uh, in the tasting room at Amity. Um, uh, was fortunate enough to, you know, to spend some time with, uh, with Myron, you know, on the periphery. Uh, and Patrick McGilligott, uh, who was part of that organization, um, you know, threw me some hours at the Oregon Wine Tasting Room and got exposed to more wines, and including uh, Andrew Rich uh, in, in his wines. And sometime around, I think, 2002, when the studio was opening down there uh, for their first harvest, um, I had reached out to Andrew, and um, um, he gave me a harvest position down there. Uh, so I really got to work with, um, you know, some some varieties outside of uh, most of my exposure, which had been Pinot. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, he's got a lot of uh, different Bordelais varietals and Rhone varietals and stuff. And um, so that was great. Um, then went to work for Tory Moore, uh, was the assistant winemaker there for a year. Um, uh, under Ryan Harms, fantastic guy. I'm sure you, you've got to have an interview with him. Um, and... Uh, and then, so I was there for about a year, I guess, and then uh, came here in 2004 uh, um, and was hired as the assistant winemaker. And um, I remember when I interviewed with, with Gino, Gino Cuneo, um, had this great interview with him, and, um, and he said, uh, you know, well, we'd like to offer you the position. And I said, well, if you don't mind, uh, I'd like to think about it. And he, I, I had like um, maybe a harvest position or something like that at Rex Hill that was, you know, in the offing. And of course, you know, the big place, um, big Pino house. And, and he said, um, well, if you don't mind my asking, what, you know, what is it that you, you're kind of uh, considering? And I said, well, um, you know, I really want to make Pino. And he's, 
okay. He's like, well, we make Pinot here, and I'd like to think it's good. Uh, you know, we were working with some fantastic fruit, you know, Meredith Mitchell Pinot, and, um, and he said, but you get to work with all these other varietals, you know, all these Italian varietals that I had no experience with, you know, Bourlet varietals, Rhone varietals, and, um, and that really stuck with me. He sent me home with a bottle of Nebbiolo. I think he asked me, you know, uh, is there something here? You know, he showed me the, you know, the blinds he has. Is there something here you want to take home? And I think I was going to take home a bottle of Pinot or Syrah. I don't remember. And he's like, take this home. And he sent me home with a bottle of Nebbiolo. And, uh, and I went home and I, I you know, dwelt on it. And, um, and the next day I called him and said, yeah, I know I'm on board. Um, I, I'd like to think that that was the best decision I'd, I'd made for my career. Um, I didn't think that I would be here this long. I thought, you know, it'd be three to five year plan, mm -hmm. you know, and maybe go somewhere else, get some more experience and et cetera. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I got a lot of exposure to um, Southern Oregon fruit. At, you know, at the time we were working with, <clears throat> you know, a little less than half of our fruit was from Southern Oregon. A little less than half was from Eastern Washington, Columbia Valley. And then, um, you know, the balance of that being Pinot from here in the, in the valley. And um, so I got to work with fruit from a lot of different regions and a lot of different varieties that were expressing different things because of where they were growing. And um, eventually, you know, we decided that we liked the expression of the more northerly grown uh, Italian varietals, etc., um, owing to that, uh, um, you, you know, uh, longer day-night thing during the growing season and the cooler temperatures that they tend to experience out there uh, at night um, in high desert plateau. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, now I guess about 80%, 85% of our fruit is from Eastern Washington. And, um, you know, we still work uh, with, with Pinot and we now make white varietals. We didn't do anything like that uh, when I first started here. Um, and uh, uh, I can't imagine not working with Willamette Valley fruit. Um, this is my home and, and, and the climate here is just, it's a part of my blood. You know, I really like um, feel this is like, this place resonates with me. Um, but uh, you know, uh, for for our model and for our customers and what we do, we're carrying on that legacy of of making Italian varietal wines and and you know Bordeaux uh, um, style blends and Bordelais varietal wines and and Rhone and that sort of thing. That uh, you know we need a little more heat than the Willamette Valley can muster, um, you know, reliably at least. And um, and Washington is just uh, the Columbia Valley is a um, a great place to grow those. Over the years, some of our fruit sources have changed, but I'm still working with um, Ciel du Cheval Vineyards, and you know it's uh, shifted you know from you know original owner founder uh, guy who planted Ciel du Cheval uh, Jim Holmes. I think um, he and Patty um, Patricia. Uh, Gellis um, Kiona, I think first two really to establish vineyard sites they helped each other plant each other's vineyards and um, you know uh, some really early pioneers up uh, on Red Mountain and um, 
now his his son, uh, uh, Richard Holmes, uh, is in charge of operations and, and managing the site, and um, uh, and he's working with a, a chap named Cade Cassiato, who's also an Oregon State graduate, um, who ended up doing his graduate work, I think, at Eastern Washington, if I'm not mistaken. But um, you know, to to go from um, you know, sort of being Gino's assistant, working with uh, Jim Holmes, to you know, taking the reins uh, here in 2007, and um, now working with uh, Richard Holmes. It's been really cool to see how how that story continues to evolve, and how the the same blocks of fruit that we've been working with have evolved in that you know 17 year period. You know, I started here in 2004. Um, and um, really fortunate to be able to, you know, we don't own our own vineyards, but to be able to work with the same fruit for that period of time. And, um, you know, along the way, we've picked up some other vineyard sites uh, that are just uh, truly singular. Um, we work with this tiny little vineyard site um, kind of in the far off foothills of Mount Adams. It's, um, it's east of, of Mount Adams. Um, it's the westerly most planting in the Yakima Valley AVA and it's up on the slope, high elevation site, north facing. Um, it's above the original flood plain, you know, from the Missoula flood. So the soil profile, it's all like ancient blue clay soils and um, very different than the sedimentary soils that define like, you know, 95% of, uh, of agriculture in the Columbia Basin. So um, getting to work with some of the same varietals in a completely different setting, you know, in the greater Columbia Basin, that's been pretty cool. Um, uh, we started working with them in 2012. Um, started working with, uh, at that same time, with fruit from Destiny Ridge Vineyard in 2012 um, with uh, Jared and Ali Boyle. Um, and we... Ah, almost half of our fruit comes from that site and we work with uh, you know a dozen different varietals from there um, you know those people they'll, they'll give you the shirt off their back they don't know uh, uh, the meaning of the word no they're just you know like whatever they just you know what do you want what do you need been really fun working with them um, and you know working with people that just are are, are fun and um, Know, dedicated to what they do we're just um, I couldn't be more fortunate to, to a be working in this industry and to be find myself you know here um, 16 17 I don't know if I'm I think I'm coming up maybe on my 18th vintage here um, and to be working with the people that I do uh, is just um, truly a, a blessing I guess for me um, there's been a, a for me, a lot of personal growth, you know, a lot of professional growth in there too, and you know, honing skills along the way. You know, like every vintage has something new to teach you, and it, it, it seems like every year there's some like, oh wow, you know, haven't deal, you know, have had to deal with that before. Um, and so it's nice that it keeps you on your toes, and it it, it gives you. You know, another tool in your toolbox, now you know how to deal with this and, um, you know, if that comes up again. Um, and that's that's been something that's, that's really, you know, kept me 
engaged and kept me from getting bored. Small place here, you know, you wear a lot of hats. Uh, that also keeps you from getting bored. Um, having the opportunity to uh, work directly with our customers uh, has taught me a lot um, and continues to teach me. You know, um, we've been so busy uh, in the last, you know, year, year and a half, we've we kind of changed how we engage with our customers. Um, and, you know, the uh, there's a bit of a um, labor shortage. And um, so we all find ourselves working a lot of extra hours. And, um, uh, you know, I work on um, a lot of the weekends, you know, just assisting the, the tasting room effort and, and supporting, you know, our staff here. And, you know, a lot of that is like bussing tables or, you know, bringing things out for people. And, you know, having worked here as long as I have, a lot of our regular customers recognize me. And, um, you know, so you just, you end up having conversations with folks or if they ask you a question about the wine, maybe somebody who's never visited, you know, gives you an opportunity to talk with them and hear a little bit about, um, you know, what brought them here, what their interest is. And the older I get, the more questions I find myself asking as opposed to, you know, trying to tell them things. I like to ask them questions in here and that's, it's educational. But, um, you know, so that's been a, a big part of my, you know, professional growth too and has informed a lot of what we're doing in the, in the cellar. Um, I, I'm not sure how many other places uh, um, in the valley or, um, you know, in the, in the region uh, have essentially the same cellar crew uh, for, for the period of time that, you know, me and the guys have been working together. But, um, you know, Inez and Omero, they, they were working here before I started. And, um, you know, their skill set and uh, their understanding of, of what we do, um, um, you know, on an annual basis. Um, and the rapport that you develop and the relationship that you develop with people working with them for that long, um, you can't put a value on that. Um, you know, I've watched their kids grow up. Um, we've, we've all kind of gotten old together. Um, we joke about it. Uh, but uh, I mean, that, that's for me has been a fantastic experience. Um, and I count myself to be very fortunate there as well. Um, uh, Jason Brumley, our, our assistant winemaker, I think you've got maybe an interview scheduled with him coming up. Um, he came here originally, he started uh, in the tasting room. And, uh, but then, uh, I don't know, I think he went to Australia and did a harvest and then came back and, and uh, I gave him a harvest position. It might've been 2010, I think was his, his first vintage. And, um, he kept coming back for more, you know, vintage after vintage. And um, when uh, when it came time to uh, bring on a new assistant winemaker, at the time, um, Dan Dury was uh, was our assistant winemaker. And, and Dan is has gone on to be uh, the winemaker at Lady Hill. Um, but, you know, Jason had, had worked here so much and, and had shown such an incredible um, enthusiasm and passion and uh, uh, just a, a degree of interest that you, you know 
along with um, a great wealth of, of just bookish knowledge, and, and he had enough experience. I'm like, this guy. <laughs> and uh, I uh, called him up and offered a job, and he was like, yeah. And um, so we've been working together uh, for, for many years, and he's been uh, in the assistant winemaker position, I think, 2015 or 16. I think maybe it was 16 was his first vintage as assistant winemaker. Um, and uh, so, you know, the unit back there, the four of us have been together for, for quite some time. And, um, uh, you know, we, we continue to, to stretch our um, um, notion of how things um, should be done. And every year offers us a new opportunity to, to learn new things and do things differently and improve on what we're doing. Um, and I just, I, I can't say enough good things about the team that I have to be able to work with. Um, so, uh, we have uh, an incredibly loyal customer base. Um, that we have seller club members here that um, have been, uh, you know, we didn't really have the same seller club that we have now um, that we did when I started. Uh, but we had kind of like a, you know, it was a futures buyers, you know, back when selling futures was a big thing. Um, and we still have a lot of those same customers. And, uh, you know, they'll come in sometimes and they'll bring out an old bottle and they'll talk about it and, oh, you know, that. And, um, that's, it's, it's pretty cool. And it gives you a lot of opportunity to reflect on the fact that, that, that what we do, I mean, you know, your day-to-day -day stuff changes throughout the year. You know, you're on this sort of odd, you know, agricultural cycle. And then on top of that, you know, with the aging um, of the wine and, you know, things are always changing throughout the year. Um, and there's a lot of, like, cool things in there. And there's a lot of, like, unfun things and you know the admin and the record keeping and you know stuff like that and sitting in front of a computer you know doing emails I think every job no matter how cool it is has stuff like that to do but uh, you know at the end of the day what all of us here in the industry um, what we get to do is is be involved in making something that at the end of the day it's meant to bring joy to people's lives that's pretty special you know like to um to bring people together is uh you know i think that if we were making widgets i i i don't know if i would have lasted um half as long but um when when you have an opportunity to to reflect on that, that that all of your efforts are are at the end of the day are meant to produce something that you know brings people together and and um, facilitates um, people gathering, people sharing food, people sharing stories. Uh, that's rich. And I, I don't um, I don't know what other type of job I could do that would give me that opportunity um, and you know I expect that that will um, carry me through you know for the next 17 years here I don't know <laughs>
and if I have 17 years left. Um, I think that no matter where you are in this industry, if um, if you haven't yet really um, solidified that understanding, you know, you will or you'll you'll end up probably going somewhere else. Uh, it's not a um, it's it's not a quite as romantic and easy of a thing to do on a you know sort of like a day-to-day -day basis and you know you get people in the industry talking um, you know you know uh, I don't know at the end of a long hard day and um, you know there there are some real challenges to being in the industry and um, and it's becoming a more competitive thing and there's there's more and more uh, what's what I'm looking for regulatory and um, you know challenges compliance and stuff like that that, that can make make the work a real drag um, and you know this last year and a half two years uh, and uh, I my heart goes out to um, you know the folks that uh, you know ended up leaving uh, because of you know the challenges that, that presented and um, you know, at the at the end of the day, though, you know, if if you can persevere through that, um, and if we can, you know, get through the other side of this with, I don't know, some some return to like, uh, or at least something that you can count on, you know, uh, in terms of how you do business, um, I think that that magic still holds. Uh, um, an attraction and um, I imagine that most people that work in this industry feel the same way I hope they do it's a very thorough answer I have to go back and ask some questions now to yeah go back go back in time a little bit so I want to talk <coughs> excuse me I want to talk about your first harvest experience what you remember from first time in harvest you have this interest you have some education Tell me about that, and what about the work uh, appealed to you and made you want to keep doing it? So I guess my my first harvest experience. You know, I I went down to Oregon State um, in uh, fall of '97, and so when the growing season started in '98, I was working out in the University Vineyard, and you know helping you know tend to the the vines but you know also collecting research and stuff um and then you know we did a lot of like you know harvesting for our data but um you know the 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 ag uh crew at oregon state um bunch of really neat people they had you know been you know also using um you know because they part of the the operation there um, they had vines, you know, research vines at Lewis Brown Farms and then, you know, research vines at various different wineries around the valley and then some at this, you know, at the University Vineyard. So there was always fruit available, including the, the Alpine Vineyards fruit, which half of that was the stuff that wasn't research was you pick. And I think they sold some to their neighbor there, too. And so, you know, you know I don't know, it was like a buck a pound or something like that. And, um, you know, so you just scrape together a hundred bucks for your, you know, five gallon thing or whatever. I can't remember. Um, but, uh, so, 
you know, you've got this, uh, you know, couple five-gallon totes, or I think maybe what we were doing is combining them into those 20-gallon, you know, um, larger things, and, you know, doing a punch down with your hand, and it's in your kitchen at home, and um, I, I, that doesn't really qualify as harvest, but um, in a manner of speaking, it, it kind of, you know, got your beak wet for, you know, at least the, um, the, the feel uh, of harvest and um, and I that part hasn't changed my you know my first commercial like harvest vintage was at Benton Lane with uh, with Gary Horner um, you know um, larger size operation for Willamette Valley back then you know um, but um, chill guy um, really uh, cool demeanor um, and take that to the bank you know when you're working in in you know long hours um you know during harvest because you know you're on the fruit schedule at that point and then not only the picking but then you're fermenting and, and you've got um you know you once that started you're kind of on you know the yeasts schedule and, and the timetable of, of those fermentations so you put in just an incredible amount of hours um, and you know, you're you're not eating well. You're eating a lot of like, I mean, you're eating a lot of sugar because you're tasting the fruit constantly. Um, you know, I I'm sure that my my sugar intake from like September, you know, through harvest just goes through the roof. And and then you know, once you start eating sugar, you start craving sugar, and you know, grabbing a donut or whatever. So you know, it's it's physically the hours are long you're you're probably not eating well you're breathing a lot of like co2 that's just kind of in the air you know you ventilate and and things like that but you're putting your head you know we've got these open top fermenters these little four foot things and you know and you go up to the edge of it and you you waft it because you want to smell that'll tell you what's you know what's happening in there you want to smell it and so you know you're constantly huffing co2 and um it, and you're not sleeping a lot um, cause you're working long hours and that'll make you cranky. Um, that'll make most people cranky. Um, so being able to, uh, you know, see in my first harvest to watch, um, you know, and I think the assistant winemaker at the time there quit in the middle of harvest. Um, but, uh, Gary was cool as a cucumber and he, he, I, can't say that I, I've always been cool as a cucumber. It's not in my nature, um, but uh, you know, twenty or so harvests will will teach you to to learn to be a little more cool during harvest. Um, and if you can do that, it, it gives you a little more energy to to um, partake in. Oh, I wish there was a word for it. I, I'm sure the French have a word for it, and you know, because their language, they just, they tend to have more words for um, subtle romantic things. But there, there is a, um, for lack of a better word that I can find at this moment, there is a, um, a magic that happens during harvest where um, you're intensely involved in. Um, uh, a cycle, a natural cycle um, that involves, um, you know, all kinds of different 
beings, if you will, right? All kinds of life and life forms. And, you know, the people aside that you're working with, that are all working toward that same effort, um, you know, you have the vines and you have all the, the ecology and the, um, you know, the web of life that's out in the vineyard um, that's participating in and contributing to this. And, and then you bring that into the cellar and now you have these microbes, these countless, uh, you know, different microbes that are involved in, in contributing to the process. And um, there's something I think that's unique like I feel it every year and I know Jason does he and I have had endless conversations about it um, there are literally like you know what probably trillions of microbes that are like in this really small space you know inside the cellar and um, you know I don't care what your spiritual background is if you reflect on that for a minute and you think about like you know how that energy is in that space and you are there and you're you're putting out energy um and i i've noticed that um uh contentious sellers um i think they produce contentious wines and harmonious sellers produce harmonious wines um and i think so there's something to that but uh there is this this weird buzz that you get for, for us, you know, our harvest goes for, you know, um, two, two and a half months. And, um, and as it winds down and you can feel it, things quieting down. And then, you know, both Jason and I talk about like the, this odd sort of low grade depression that you go through afterwards. Cause you're just like in this, like, wow, it's kind of like you just left the best party that you've ever been to. And, and, you know, as it quiets down, you're, there's sort of like this, like, um, and, and then you're in this period of hibernation. So, um, that aspect of harvest, I think for me has, has always been there and my awareness of it has only deepened, you know, over the years. And I, you know, was probably only subconsciously aware of it in those first few years and you're probably excited like oh this is really cool and you know when you put your hand in it it's kind of like that that first time I saw that that fermentation lock ticking away on that first batch of beer I brewed um, that uh, you know when you do a commercial harvest is is a little bit harder to ignore and and like I said certainly as you go that really comes through and, and is distilled to a point of like even though you have this like this sort of dread of like oh do I have all the things done that I need to do before you know harvest is going to hit and then it's going to be you know you hit the ground running um, but as soon as you do it's just it's it's kind of like pure joy you know stress aside you you get caught up in, in that magic you mentioned earlier the advice that Steve Price gave you about kind of Going, going, vineyard, going into the vineyard first and, yeah. and, and mastering that before. So tell me about sort of that part of your of your education, learning, learning, learning the vineyard part of the work, and how that's sort of come forward in your vineyard work now. Working, working with the vineyards you work with. What are you looking for in vineyard sites, and, and what are you, what are you asking of them that you, that you know will will make for better wine. Um. 
couple parts to that question, I guess. Um, and given my tendency to meander, <laughs> I might have to go back to part of that. Um, the academic side of working in the vineyard, um, you know, you, you learned a lot about, um, um, you know, obviously photosynthesis and um, um, plant gas exchange and, and, you know, water usage and, and nutrients and, and looking at the vines and seeing like, you know, this is a happy, healthy vine. This is an unhappy, healthy vine. You know, get exposure to, you know, vine pathology and, and you know, it's a good foundation. Um, I learned, A, I definitely don't want to be a farmer. I love to garden and um, I've got, you know, more plants than I can responsibly have in, in, in the space that I have at home. Um, I love plants, but um, farming is like, that is hard work. And, and we, I think as a society on a whole, don't really well recognize that. That is some of the hardest work you can do. Um, having an understanding of what goes into that and what it takes and specifically with grapes uh, really helps me um, I think probably the the best thing that I learned particularly in the early years about uh, relationships with growers and and um, how to work together and, and how to get to that end goal um, was that um, growers farmers they're, they're proud people they should be you know there's something there's a certain amount of pride that comes with this is my land these are my efforts and at the end of the day this is what I I have to show for it um, and um, I don't care what your academic education is or even what your experience you know with actual like farming is uh, the worst thing you could possibly do to uh, grow relations or to, 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 you know, being part of a, a collaborative effort to grow quality fruit is to, to walk onto some guy's land and start telling him what to do and, and how to do things. That, that is just, um, uh, I think it's, for me, my approach has always been to, to like ask, to ask questions uh, of like, you know, um, Hey, what, what would happen if we were to do this? Or, it, um, you know, what happens, uh, you know, if, if we wanted um, this, um, what's the best way to do that? You know, they're out there on that piece of land every day, year after year. They know better what to do to get to a certain point. Um, hopefully, you know, by the time you've gotten to the point where you're sitting down with a, a grower to talk about, you know, you know, for me, it's, it's, it's a long-term relationship. I'm not interested in, you know, buying fruit one year from somebody, you know, uh, there's, there's not a lot of interest in that for me and it's not a good business plan. Um, but hopefully by the time you've got to the point where you're sitting down, you know a little bit about the quality of the fruit that they grow. So they should have earned your respect at least for that. Um, what comes in the next year or so is uh, the learning, the, the rapport that you have with them as a person, how they communicate, and um, uh, that's that's critical, I think. And um, 
um, part of developing a really healthy rapport in, in a business relationship uh, that's built on trust is, um, you know, is more of the approach of like understanding that you're both in it for, for the purpose of making high quality, you know, product and recognizing that, um, saying, how do we do this together and sharing ideas. Um, so, um, I have a, um, a, a okay understanding of, of how vines work and vine physiology. And I, I've got, you know, better part of two decades of like hard experience and exposure to vines growing to, to help that along the way. But the real experience is with the grower and, um, we share our wine with them. We share our, our philosophy and what we're trying to do. Um, and so that, that really helps with achieving that goal, particularly for us. And for me as a winemaker, um, you know, my background being in cool climate viticulture, um, and Pinot being my first love as, as wines go, um, uh, I tend to prefer wines that maybe express a little more acidity. Um, and in the early years, I, I preferred wines that expressed a lot of acidity and tannin and tension. Um, being a young man, you know, um, I think uh, tension is part of your, you know, kind of energetic profile. And, and it, when I look back at some of my older wines, I'm like, oh, well, yeah. Um, I remember going through blending trials in the early days and, and tasting these softer wines and going, God, I mean, it's flabby. It doesn't have any, you know, zing. It doesn't have any, it, you know, it doesn't make my mouth water. And, um, and now I go back and I taste some of those older wines. I'm like, wow, that's a pretty lean wine. Um, as I've gotten older and as I've paid a little more attention to our customers, you know, my approach to that has softened a little bit. But... I think relative to um, most of the wine that's being made in Eastern Washington, I, I'm, at least from my experience with the growers, we're invariably we're the first people picking, you know, out there in those various blocks, and um, it's because you know I'm looking for a certain type of profile, um, and I like to think that I'm I'm, you know, using sort of I have like cool climate sensibilities applying to you know wines that kind of need warm climate to grow um, or a very very narrow band of, of land that you can find to grow that style of wine so to answer the question about when you look for sites or or for growers to work with um, while we still work with CL du Cheval and and you know foundationally speaking um, uh, they are contributing you know the bedrock of, of fruit for our program they have for you know over 20 years before I started working here that relationship goes back and and you know produces you know some of our marquee wines the Nebbiolo the Sangiovese Grosso um, so uh, that relationship I don't see is changing the newer relationships going back to 2012 um, those were um, about me looking for cooler pockets in a, in a warm area 
Um, so vineyard sites that are, you know, right on the river, you know, on Columbia River, Destiny Ridge Vineyard, Roosevelt Ridge Vineyard, um, or sites like Slide Mountain, you know, this magical place that um, is is in the Columbia Basin, but, you know, the wines, you know, it's, it's just on the edge of that, and it's high elevation, north-facing slope. It's, it's a slower ripening site. And it produces some um, some very dynamic fruit that's nothing like the other wines that I'm working with, and um, so that it allows me to achieve a number of things, and um, you know, uh, also produce uh, wines that are a little bit softer. And um, so, those are the sites that I'm looking for: are, are cooler pockets in warmer areas. Um, and if I was looking for a new Pinot site, I'd be doing the same thing. You know, maybe in the coastal range or I don't, I don't know. Um, um, but it's getting warmer, uh, so uh, I don't think. Um, uh, I mean, I haven't had a vintage in any of these sites where we've failed to ripen the fruit. I mean, you could practically plant grapes in a cave out there in Columbia Valley and ripen them. Um, there's plenty of sunshine. It's warm. And so I like these cooler pockets that, that are going to um, ripen a little bit slower. Um, and that, those are the newer sites. And that balances out that foundational, you know, red mountain grown, um, you know, intense heat and, and even wind and, you know, arid conditions that produce these wines of, it, of intense, you know, power and structure. So um, uh, currently, um, as, as, as we're, you know, growing and looking to grow our production. Um, there's another site that I, you know, was planted a couple of years ago that's, they're, they're going to be pulling their first harvest off it this year. It's on the Oregon side and it's in the gorge. And um, I just visited there, you know, usually early on in the growing season, Jason and I will go out and we'll spend a couple days out there checking out the sites, talking to the growers, looking, okay, this is, you know, this is kind of the, the start for for vintage and looking at how things are. And we stopped off at this site and we were both like, wow, this is one of those like very different sites, super high elevation, north facing slope, and um, you know, surrounded by like cherry orchards. It's just cherries everywhere out there. And and then this uh, a little higher up, you know, these these um, these grapevines. So those are the sites that continue to you know interest me. Um, and that, that, that would be if I was looking for, for more fruit um, that I needed to go to another vineyard for that would be kind of what I'd be looking for is something in that vein and then of course obviously the, the varietals that you're looking for and then you know the, the people that are working there you know the, you get the greatest fruit in the world from a place but if you, if you don't like the grower or if, or if there's, you have a really difficult time with the rapport or uh, you know, eventually it's not going to last. Um, so, um, it, it, knowing that, it's kind of incumbent upon me as the, you know, person who's looking for something to, to, you know, how do I make that happen with them? If I really like that site, you know, like how do I, how do I uh, make this relationship with these people, um, you know, productive and, but you know, that's not so hard. I, I think you set your, your ego and pride aside and it's amazing how easy <laughs> all that can be.
<laughs> it's complicated. It's complicated. Complicated relationships. Yeah. Like I like it. Human beings are complicated. <laughs> so tell me about the. You mentioned the kind of the philosophy of the place. So tell me about when you were hired here. What, how, how, what it was that you were hired into, and and, and how that's evolved over the years. Um. The philosophy here has always been and and goes back to, to Gino because I mean ultimately this was his vision and he attracted uh, a group of friends and a group of people around him that saw what his vision was and shared that vision and you know came together to make Canis Feast what it is today but um, that philosophy again is is about hospitality um, I think somewhere on our website or somewhere in our, our mission statement or part of our logo, um, it, it, it says something about uh, um, we want our wine not necessarily to be the centerpiece of the conversation. We want it to facilitate that conversation. We want it to be the thing that people come together around a table food, you know, friends, family, um, and, you know, bottle of wine is, it makes those things coming together pretty easy, um, and it, it helps to facilitate that, and the purpose there is just to, to, you know, give people more opportunity to develop connection, um, you know, opportunity to, to slow down and have authentic conversation, you know, and turn off all the digital stimulus and, and you know, connect with each other. Um, so that's that's at the heart of what we do. And, and everybody that works here, like, I mean, that's kind of the first exposure that you get. I don't even, I can't recall if it was ever distilled into a message that way when I started, but it was very apparent because I'm one of the interview questions is, can you remember your, your first you know, uh, wine food pairing experience and what was that and can you, you know, describe that. Um, so, you know, from the start, it's always been about the dinner table and um, um, that sense of, of hospitality. Um, obviously, over the, uh, you know, centuries and, and wherever you travel in different regions, that looks a little bit different in how people gather and as families have, have changed a little bit, um, that changes too. And, and um, I think that as a group of people, we're very, you know, we're acutely aware of that and um, want to not get so caught up exactly on, you know, stylistically, how does that look? Is it a Mediterranean table? And, you know, as much as it's like, you know, maybe that's what we're, we've cultivated here for the aesthetic. But um, it doesn't matter. Maybe maybe it's just you and another person that is, you know, sitting down. Whether it's you know a coworker, you know, is you know or your your best friend. That's you know the way people define family now is different, and we 100% honor that and want to you know be able to facilitate because it's that sharing and, and coming together and gathering that is that's the the, the most important part. And so, you know, everyone that works here, when, when they, you know, some of the newer people, we've got a lot of old hands here, 
um, but some of the newer people, that's one of the things that we tell them is, you know, this is our philosophy. Um, and hospitality um, is a, about us serving you, the customer. And, you know, um, this isn't a place that's for a platform for us to put a spotlight on us and say, look at us. It's about, like, what can we do for you? What can we do to make your, you know, experience here a good one? Um, or or um, even going back to learning about like what our customers appreciate about the wines what what can I do uh, in the winemaking process to make this um, you know a better experience for you this wine um, you know so you know that has evolved a little bit but the core of that has always been about hospitality bringing people together you know creating um, an opportunity for for people to, to gather and, and share mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when it, when it <clears throat> at the time it was open or the time it was started, uh, not a lot of places around here that were that were not not focusing on Pinot. So I'm, I'm curious about finding finding clientele and finding people to buy. Has it has that changed and gotten easier, more difficult? How, how has that changed over time? Um, this is this is going to be an odd way to answer this. Um, I, I feel like in some ways it's always been a little bit easier because you you're offering something unique um and and, and different um but um that can also present some challenges um you know to find what your place is in the in the greater fold in the, in the community here um so while it does have um, a few challenges, I feel like that those challenges have become less uh, as we have con continued to, to um, thrive here and be a part of the community and contribute in ways that we can um, to the, the community. And while we may not be sort of a, a marquee a producer in the valley or a you know even producing the marquee uh, grape you know we're not a big you know Pinot house um, I think we still contribute to to the community and we've developed relationships and uh, you know with our neighbors and with people in the industry um, so that I feel like is is has gotten easier to find where our place is and in um, and to to feel comfortable in our place, um, I remember the first day I met Gino Cuneo. I um, it was at I was an undergrad and it was at some technical meeting, and you know and he stood up and he you know he, at the end of this someone's you know research talk and he you know, I had these questions and I was like that guy's different. Gino's always been a, a kind of like a black sheep here in the valley, but and it's part of his his DNA. He's an innovator, and um, but um, I don't I don't consider us to be sort of a black sheep organization here. We offer something a little bit different. There's a lot of people that are doing that too, you know. And Rich uh, is one of them who's been doing it here for a long time. Um, but the, it, you know, find me a Pinot producer around here that uh, you know, even some of the more established ones that hasn't been making Syrah for you know ten or more years, or you know that doesn't have other arrows in their quiver um, 
and and you know even you know you're going to see newer varietals being planted so that they're not being imported from other areas as things get a little bit warmer you know cab franc anyone you know you're going to see other things being planted around here um and so it's going to become less and less of a wow you guys are really different um on the other side of things in terms of attracting customers um that's just been like shooting fish in a barrel almost um like because even if people haven't heard of you if they've been out tasting pinot all day they're they're visiting the area um you know hey this is our third stop um you know and we're we're we'd like to try something different we're kind of filled up on pinot is there you know people get pointed in our direction um but uh um as our presence has grown uh that's kind of one of the things that we've become known for um is being a stop where people can come to 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 get italian varietal wines and bordeaux varietal wines and as the population here grows you've got a lot of people coming from a lot of different areas and um obviously if if you know when people are coming here uh they they're coming here i think because they also like those varietals but um you know there's a lot of people that pinot isn't their favorite varietal and um there's more of those people now as this area grows and i think that the population has grown perhaps more so than the number of places that are doing more than pinot as at least or, or that are very visible about what they're doing so like our customer base um continues to grow i i, I guess i mean I'm, probably everybody does because you know the wine industry is is more visible and and we've established ourselves in you know we the industry in oregon is has established itself as as a wine region and people come here from all over the world because of that and so everyone's customer base is growing it it does feel to me like it's gotten a little bit easier um but uh, I'm also going to credit that to the staff here and the job they do of hosting people and creating a warm, you know, hospitable environment because that's, you know, people come and they have a bad experience. They're likely not going to come back and, or they're going to tell people they had a bad experience. And so, you know, having a staff that, that, uh, um, that recognizes the importance of, of, you know, creating a warm environment for people, that's helped, I think, you know, uh, attract customers too. <laughs> are there any specific challenges that come with Italian wine either from the making it side or from the selling it side well the selling it side for sure um, there's this thing this weird experiment called prohibition that really kind of gutted the uh, the established wine industry um, which at that time was was rich with Spanish immigrants, Italian immigrants, German immigrants, yeah, French. Um, and I, I, you know, I haven't done extensive research on this and there's probably a graduate uh, paper in there somewhere for somebody to look at post-prohibition, what, uh, what was the, the largest, uh, you know, immigrant community to reestablish because if you look at here in the U.S., like most of the the the, the visible varietals, the the terms in the cellar, the terms in the vineyard, almost all of the industry seems to have been rooted in in a French 
uh, uh, concept. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, uh, maybe the Italians got more into the selling and, and distribution side of things post prohibition. <laughs> but uh, because of that dark uh, mark on our, our history of, of, you know, getting rid of this, this, you know, culture, mm -hmm. um, it's taken longer in reestablishing that culture to get the Italian varietal message out there. Um, I, my exposure to Italian varietals was, was pretty minimal before I started working here. I, you know, worked in restaurants for years and even, you know, in the front of the house too, waiting tables. And I recall some of the early experiences I had and the ones that I do remember, you know, working in little Italian places, you know, were, you know, selling Barbaresco and Barolo. Those are the, you know, my earliest exposure to Italian varietal wines. Um, and then when I started working here, of course, then it just, you know, um, fell down the rabbit hole. You know, you spend a little bit of time in Italy and um, your exposure deepens. Um, you read stuff from, you know, a guy like Ian Degata. Um, you know, he, this guy has, you know, written this like, kind of like an encyclopedia on Italian varietal, indigenous varietals, and, and it's mind-blowing. And um, I would love to see uh, the, you know, broadening of cultivation of Italian varietals. Uh, I know there's there's quite a few people uh, around here that are doing that, and, and even established growers, you know, Arnace, that, that, that one, like, it keeps cropping up and, and uh, um, I'd like to see that one continue to, to grow because it's it's just a fantastic, it makes a, an amazing wine, it grows well here um, and people love it. Uh, but there is that, that marketing side of, you know, getting people like familiar with, um, with those wines. You know, um, here in the U.S. we're very varietally oriented, well, you know, it's not just the U.S. It's the new world, and, and honestly, the, the system of selling a wine purely based on its appellation, it, you know, it, there's a movement away from that even in the old world, because not everybody is from that area, and not, not everybody has the time to educate themselves and recognize that when you, you know, buy a, 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 a white burgundy, they, they don't know that that's also the, you know, that, that Chardonnay, it's the same grape. They don't, you know, that has created, I think, a hurdle for uh, importers, you know, and as they want more access to new world markets, you know, um, and even just talking to people, like just people outside of the industry in, in Europe and their knowledge of, they may not know that, that Nebbiolo is the predominant grape, you know, in, you know, and is what is in a Barolo or in a Barbaresco. And those wines aren't, like, they're not, like, everywhere on every table. Um, so is, as the messaging around how wines are sold changes a little bit, um, we've got some catching up to do to get people familiar with the varietals. Um, our best opportunity, yeah, I mean, there's social media, and, and you can do all kinds of digital outreach, but there's nothing like pouring something for somebody and when they're sipping on it or tasting on it to tell them about this is where that varietal originated this is how it tends to express itself here are some some um, situations where you might want to you know pair this with 
this type of meal. And um, as we've done that, I I feel like uh, people's awareness is is growing. You know, it definitely has with our customer base, um, not only with our regulars, but uh, um, you know, you see other producers that are doing Italian varietal wines, and you know, we've been hosting for. I don't know, over 10 years. We obviously took last year and this year off from doing it, but this um, event that, that was geared at um, bringing together producers of Italian varietal wines, you know, from here in the valley and pouring them for, for customers. We do this event, you know, called Alien in the Valley. And you get five, 600 people that show up, and there's a fantastic learning opportunity. You know, you've got a critical mass of, of, samples to show people here's five examples of, of Sangiovese you know a lot of people that have maybe they've never tasted one or never heard of it and their only like connection to it is that that wicker basket you know with the red and white checkered table so there, there's a lot of uh, room to, to grow there but I'm finding that proposition uh, particularly with the younger generation of wine drinkers uh, they're seeking out that, and and instead of having to convince them, like here's why. Oh yeah, no, you should try. I know it's not Cab, or I know it's not Pinot. You like Pinot? You don't really try this Nebbiolo. You might like it. Um, younger wine drinkers, they're like, oh man, they jump into it with both feet, and so I'm finding that it's becoming easier, and um, it's. More importantly, it's kind of it's what we do and it's what we really enjoy doing. So I don't see that as ever, you know, taking a back seat to to our production. So tell me about your winemaking style or philosophy and and, and how that's changed. You mentioned kind of the young the younger man wines you made. <laughs> uh, tell me tell me about that and and what kind of wines would you say you're making now? Um. I, part of my philosophy that hasn't changed, you know, aside from the, the you know, the sort of the cool climate approach um, and wanting to always have like, you know, you know, I think the, the acidity is, is truly the backbone of a, of a wine. Everything is built around that. The chemistry is dependent on that, you know, how it interacts with your palate, how that wine ages, all those things, how it expresses its aroma. It's all about the acidity. Um, but finding... Uh, that sweet spot um, uh, I, I've gotten I, I hope I've gotten better at doing that and in putting that into balance with the tannins but um, the part of my philosophy that's never changed is that if like, it, the, 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 the say the various varietals uh, that we make here or the blends that we make um, you know a lot of them are, are legacy programs and you know I've I've changed and tweaked them maybe a little bit to sort of suit a little bit about, you know, how I feel they best express themselves. But it's always been about trying to um, um, be true to the the thing about the wine that inspired me to, to work with that grape and make that. So, like... Um, I, I don't want to to change a varietal so much that it, it becomes something I don't recognize from the original thing. So, particularly with like varietal wines, I really, really want them to express the varietal 
characteristic, the thing that makes this grape taste different and unique from that grape. Um, if you're only making one or two different wines or, you know, wines from one or two different grapes, that's quite a bit easier. Um, it becomes critical if you're making a couple dozen different wines. You know, you, like, you can't, why would you make Sangiovese um, if, and, and Cab if those two wines were, you know, indistinguishable? And, I mean, that's a s simplified, uh, it's a simplified answer, but you apply that to, you know, you've got all these different varietals. And so you're always looking for that, that thing about that grape, you know, um, that makes it unique. And um, for me, it starts with like the, that grape's origin, you know, or where it was popularized, you know, or more importantly, you know, the wine that I had that, um, you know, or the wines that I've had that have inspired me to want to work with that grape. And, and like, um, I guess on some level paying homage or, you know, not necessarily emulating but like I want that to to be reminiscent of I want people to recognize you know the Nebbiolo I make I want them to recognize that as the the grape you know when um you know that if they're familiar with Barbaresco or Barolo or, or Nebbiolo de Longue or Nebbiolo de Alba you know the the thing about that grape it's characteristic I want that expressed in my wine and so and, and across all all the varietals that we make and um you know, uh, obviously the, the area where we grow them is a little bit different. The climate, you know, the soils, all those things are a little bit different. Um, grapevines are in, incredibly malleable and adaptable. It's shocking um, what you can do to make them adapt um, to elicit certain characteristics. And that's the, the, the voodoo of a, um, a brilliant viticulturalist is to be able to bring out nuances uh, in the, the quality of the fruit based on what they're doing with the canopy, what they're doing with, you know, their, their soil profile. Um, but um, at the end of the day, um, as, as Jason and I, as Inez and Omero, um, as the four of us as a group everything that we're doing you know in our regime back there is designed to bring out the most amount of varietal expression as we can um and then the the rest of the stuff is like you know spice from a spice cabinet you know the cooperage that we're using the selection of yeast whether we're going to do a, a spontaneous or native ferment versus uh you know Hey, you know, here we've got this, you know, varietal from Southern Rhone. We're going to use uh, a yeast strain isolated from Southern Rhone. You know, those little bits of things are, are, you know, we have those ways for for nuances to to then fashion it in kind of our um, in our way mm -hmm. and and in the way that resonates with with our customers. So I know that in addition to making wine, you also uh, make some vermouth. So tell me, tell me about your vermouth and how that came about. Oh, I was at a trade tasting um, with a, with our distributor, our then distributor, and um, Dan Dury, I mentioned our, our uh, old assistant winemaker. We were there together. We were pouring our wines, and um, 
<laughs> we would take turns like manning the table and then going around tasting stuff and he came back and had this puzzled look on his face and he's like and I was like what do you got there and he's like I don't know I mean I don't really like it maybe you'll like it. I don't know it's just weird and, and I was like what is it he's like I, like Barolo Quinato I had never heard of it um and it was just like you know um my first exposure to I mean it was a it was a Quinato so it wasn't technically a vermouth but a um an aromatized wine um and then you know like a nanosecond later I realized this is it's made from Nebbiolo is the base wine and you know we have Nebbiolo and you know wow wouldn't this be fun to create something like this um it's basically it's wine with different you know botanicals if you don't know what vermouth is um you know uh it's it's a wine that you then add different botanicals to um for it to be a vermouth the the main bittering herb and bittering characteristic needs to come from artemisia absinthia wormwood um there are different categories of aromatized wines quinato is its own but um you know and then you sweeten it to a degree uh to varying degree depending on style and um uh you fortify it you know with uh with grape neutral spirits you know unaged brandy um away you go uh for barolo quinato nebbiolo is the base wine and so that's where i started um we worked with a chef for many years a woman named lisa langson um uh really really neat lady um incredibly talented and, and creative and um uh, she and i spent the better part of a, a a week just goofing off with you know building a list of different botanicals and then doing extracts and tasting them and making notes and um, and that's sort of where the Barolo Quinato uh, um, uh, rabbit hole started. And, um, and so ours is, um, since it's not from Barolo, you know, it's, it's we call it Quinato uh, after the style. Um, and I was just in this crazy creative bubble that found a, a, an odd like vice-like grip on all things bitter. And, you know, got really into different, you know, bitters and um, aperitivos and digestivos. And, um, you know, after releasing the, the Quinato, um, just was exposed to this whole world of, of craft cocktail people and made all these, these friends and, you know, you know grew my, my knowledge on um, all those things. And um, that was a, an incredible creative period for me. I had, I had so much fun. Uh, working on that, you know, spun off my own brand um, because, you know, like it's hard to fit that into the context of what we're doing here. And so I, you know, this small uh, brand, you know, made a couple different vermouths and, you know, I formulated a bunch of other ones, just never really quite got around to bringing to production. Um, you know, it, it difficult to, uh, to do all things. Um, <laughs> It was an incredible creative itch that I just furiously scratched for for several years, and um, uh, in the end, uh, you know, it's doing something small like that. Um, it's good to like keep that small because it'll take on its own life, and it and you know it needs to be tended to, and um, there's a lot of administrative work and. Um, 
takes a lot to do that and um, you, you have a limited amount of time and I think ultimately I felt like oh, as I, you know as I'm getting a little older you know I kind of like you know I like what we're doing here and I also want to have a little bit of free time so that that's a, a little less of a thing right now unless I could find a you know somebody to pass that torch to I'd love to um, there's this, this really neat guy. I don't know how this fits into your uh, mission, you know, but, uh, you know, because there are distillers and different various aspects of, of alcohol production, but vermouth is, is wine. Um, and there are more and more wineries that are doing little vermouth projects, but um, there's a guy, Neil Copland, if you haven't met him or heard of his name uh, imbue vermouth I'm sure you've seen it um, all over the shelves or on the back of the bar um, uh, we kind of had these like uh, parallel paths that sort of emerged right about the same time and and uh, he and I became uh, good friends uh, in this in this little world and um, we continue to talk creatively and um, if you ever wanted to expand on that category, that dude would be uh, great to, to talk to. Absolutely. We'll chat about it after the interview. Sure. Find yeah. some more about him. Um, mm-hmm. I want to talk about this place a little bit. You mentioned a little bit when we got here, kind of the, the history of the site here. So tell me about, uh, again, kind of what it was when you got here and, and what has changed over the years here at Guinness Feast Tasting Room. Um, well, when you first came in and I said, oh, you know, we've changed some little things that have changed uh, inside. Um, not a whole lot. Um, the view hasn't really changed much. Um, I mean, the, the catchment pond that we have down there, um, the stuff growing in it um, has gotten a little bit tall this year and we haven't got around to, to trimming that back. So it's it's taken up a little bit of the view, but pretty much the view of the coastal range and, and, and the fields out here and the farming the, the pastoral charm that I think makes Carlton like just as quaint of a, a, a little wine hub as you could ask for. That, this little corner here hasn't changed much relative to that. Carlton proper, the town, that's changed a little bit. You know, there's more houses. The business community has shifted. There's some stalwarts that are still doing exactly what they're doing. There's some that have evolved a little bit in, in thriving. There's some new ones that have come in. Um, so as a town, I think it's changed a little bit more there than it has this direction. But part of that is, you know, we've got an ag exclusion zone. Um, what they grow is, is starting to change a little bit. Um, that field, um, which may be hard to see, but um, right now it's clover. Um, couple of years here and there uh, it's been wheat which has been great I mean let's face it a wheat field is pretty sexy <laughs> I mean um, but for almost all the years that, that I've I've worked here going you know here in Carlton going back to 2002 um, it's been tall fescue growing over there just the whole way over um, and I have a horrible allergy to, to fescue pollen so I'm happy to see different things being planted there. Um, hazelnut orchards are just like have exploded uh, all over the valley, uh, valley and um, particularly Yamhill Valley. And 
half of that, more than half the acreage over there that used to be in fescue production. I think they um, maybe they started leasing it out. Um, one year they did garlic over there. It was really cool. Um, uh, but they, a couple years ago, uh, planted that to, to hazelnut. And um, I think with this, uh, this patch of clover that's here, I think, because if I understand it's uh, also been leased now and the original uh, owners uh, who've been farming that um, have, have got a, somebody they've leased it to uh, that are likely going to be transitioned to hazelnut. It could be some other crop, but I don't think they're going to continue to farm it as fescue. They, they didn't do that this year. Um, but, um, <clears throat> the, yeah, the property here, we've, we've done a few different things. The bocce courts have always, you know, that's been part of the original landscape here. Um, the piazza that we're sitting under, uh, we, it hasn't always been covered. Um, I found the original plans that called for, you know, some kind of a, um, pergola type of structure. Um, but uh, when, you know, the COVID closures first happened, what was that first week of March or something in 20? Um, Amy and I, Amy Quern, um, she manages everything up here up front and admin-wise. Um, we've worked together for, for quite some time and have a great rapport. Uh, and we do a lot of sort of like the strategic thinking around things and the two of us were standing there looking out this this window at this space and thinking about like you know we've got this space out here that's outdoors um and we've used it at various events and such but obviously we don't have reliable sunshine here for for most of the year and so we need to cover it but you know how do we do that so you know let's we need to you know build a pergola over this I'm like all right yeah no, that's a great idea so i we're going back in the office uh, with Jason and starting to calculate board feet of four by four and two by six, uh, you know, pressure treated lumber and trying to cost it out. And um, and then uh, I talked to my my uh, my brother-in-law uh, from Woodstone Structures. He's been doing this kind of work for thirty years, and um, I didn't think he would have time to you know mess around with us and. Uh, he was very gracious in, in saving me from myself uh, from having um, a chintzy looking um, you know pergola to this gorgeous um, you know beam and timber space that we have here that, that has you know hand hewn double mortise and you know the, all the, the corbels and everything it's a work of art um, and um like I said, he really saved me from myself. But uh, we we got this up in, in time for uh, the wet season, and continue to host people uh, here throughout the winter. Um, you know, beautiful little fireplace. Inez and Omero did the the stonework there around that, and um, you know we got some heaters, got some plants, some lights, and you know just trying to make it a comfortable space recognizing that it was going to be a while before we could host people indoors. Um, and then, you know, at the first couple seller club events that we did, you know, where we have, you know, five, six, seven hundred people that will come through in a weekend, um, we noticed that, uh, you know, we had to rent the tent for, for the other section to get it, you know, 
everybody through that we could get in a weekend that the people that were sitting under the tent were all like, what's going on? I want to sit over there. And poor, poor Amy's, you know, fielding phone calls and emails from people like, can we sit under the pergola this time? And so I think it was the, the second Cellar Club event that we were hosting and she and I were standing there at the, the welcome uh, table when people would come up and we'd, you know, greet them. And we were standing there and she's like, looking over, she's like, we should build another one of these. We should build another one of these. I was like, all right. And I called Brian back up and they're like, yep, let's do another one. Um, so that I think has been the biggest change. Um, the, the dry set stone wall around here, Inez and O'Meara built that. It's all, you know, hand set, no mortise. That's just, you know, they've had to rebuild sections of it, you know, as, you know, storm, you know, tree limbs come down and take out a section. Um, but, uh, um, the trees, the landscaping. Um, I look back at old pictures when I started here and, and how small some of these uh, Tuscan cypress were and where they are now. And um, those things are majestic. I love it. I'd love to plant more of those. That'll, that, that, that'll come at a certain point. Um, the stone pine, the or umbrella pine or the, the Tuscan pine that you see, the kind of the bigger, wider ones, <clears throat> we really, I think struggled to understand how to sort of prune and care for those uh, and it wasn't until my first trip to Tuscany and I saw these old ones that were really tall and I was like oh you just have to keep limbing them up because they start off kind of growing like this and as the branches you know get bigger and heavier they do this and then eventually they crack and break and fall off and so that's as that's happened um, you know here and there um, you know, it took a while before I recognized that, and, and so we've started to care for those. But the landscaping, um, as it's matured, uh, um, it really it feels good to see that kind of take on a character of its own. We used to have an olive orchard here um, that was down below. Um, you know, there's like kind of this bowl that was carved in this little slope down toward the catchment pond, and Gino had terraced it out, and we had, I don't know, couple dozen different olive trees and I think they might have been a few different cultivars but um, sadly over the years um, I think those had all died off um, and then we ended up transplanting um, maybe by maybe by 2008 or 2009 maybe earlier I don't know um, so we moved them up along the property put them up in a higher space where it didn't get as much cold air. There's a drainage, cold air drainage that goes through there. And they were just getting, you know, punished. And we planted some of them in, in um, you know, cut barrels, you know, sort of a bonsai olive tree. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's changed a little bit. I'd love to, to get more olive trees on the property. Um, over the years, uh, um, different people that have worked here you know I think maybe Lisa might have been the first person to make olives from them I remember the year that she did that um, but you know she's so busy you know we, we had a little cafe restaurant in here for a number of years and took up you know more time of hers than, than it should have but so that her olive ambition kind of didn't really go terribly far 
Inez and Omero um, spent a couple years, and they still do from, you know, every now and then. Um, we'll make uh, their own cured olives from the, the trees here. Uh, Jason has done that a few years here. He's also got an olive tree in his yard. Last year, um, I was standing out here. I kind of remember what I was doing, but I, th these, these two trees were just laden with olives. And I'm like, okay. So I spent about four or five hours just, you know, and I collected a couple thousand olives um, and made my own batch of olives and, you know, got a little bit of advice from Inez and from Jason on this is what you want to do to cure them. And, and oh my God, I just love them. I thought, okay, I, I can figure out how to make those things more productive. It's fun to have them here. Um, but um, Inez and Omero, I think both of them have a, a, a passion for, for landscaping. And, you know, we've moved plants around, we've brought new plants in, and so that's constantly evolving. Uh, but, um, you know, we, we want to continue to have the view of the coastal range and the view of the, again, the, the pastoral charm that makes Carlton such a neat place to visit. And you, you see people when, they're, when they sit down and they've got a wine and they're just like, particularly in the evening as the sun is setting, you know, it gets really quiet. It's pretty cool. You brought up 2020, uh, so let's talk about 2020 a little bit. Uh, everyone's favorite topic to talk about. Uh, you mentioned kind of uh, COVID hitting and, 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 and sort of some of the things you did to, to adjust. Tell me about sort of personal, professional reaction to, to COVID and, and, its, uh, and, and its impact on the place and, and the changes you had to make last year to, to get through. Um. <clears throat> I, I think an, an event of that magnitude uh, um, gives everybody, like, I mean, an, an opportunity or a reason to do something different. Um, whether it's about, you know, you personally and how you approach things, or uh, certainly professionally, if you want to, you know, if you have a business, you, you I don't, I'm trying to think of what segment of this you know our economy hasn't had to change because of it um those first couple weeks were dark i think for everybody or no i won't say that for a lot of people when the entire economy shuts down and you you know everything is being closed and you're like i mean are we ever going to be able to open you know you, you don't you just don't know what's going to happen and um, when, when things get like really scary and stressful or, you know, when, when there's something serious that happens, um, oddly, because I'm kind of a, like, a, if I have a bit of a fiery personality, I, you know, as a kid, I grew up with more energy than I knew what to do with it. And you know, had to learn, you know, as a child to manage my temper and all kinds of things. So, you know, it's, it's in my, you know, part of my like Sicilian blood to just, you know, I'm a fairly reactive person, but when stuff is like really serious or whatever, I, I tend to have a more of a like calm, like, okay. Um, and everything that, you know, you, you couldn't turn around without some kind of messaging about, you know, pandemic or um, 
there was just a lot of like not um, uplifting messaging understandably so I, um, but what Amy and I as we you know like what do we do we obviously we have customers we, you know we want to you know we've got to communicate what we're doing you know what's going to happen in the next week or two or month or two the one thing that we were adamant about is we didn't want to we didn't want to use words or have a messaging that gave people a reason to be more unsettled we didn't have to beat people over the head with the pandemic or with COVID they were getting that everywhere and so we purposely kind of tooled our messaging in a way that while well, obviously we're talking about like you know health and wellness measures um, without using you know trigger words or what you know as, as people like to say now um, so that became kind of our mission is like okay people have plenty of reason to feel panicky or unsettled or whatever we want to make our messaging is as hopeful and uplifting as we can we don't know if we're gonna have jobs here we don't know if we're gonna have to close and if our business will get through it um, there's a lot of things that we can't do right now but we're all here I don't want to sit at home um, so and we have inventory and we were allowed to, you know, do internet sales, you know, phone sales, email sales, whatever. So we kind of just very quickly pivoted to listen, you know, if you're home, if you need something, you know, if you know somebody who can't get out or isn't safe for them to go out and they need groceries or, or you know, whatever, um, let us know. We're here. We've got time. And um, that sort of set the tone for us and how we were to to carry on for you know well kind of since then and I don't know what's going on in the next you know as we approach fall and winter but um, we're not doing things any different from that we're going to continue to toe the line 100% with you know um, with what CDC is advising with you know whatever state mandate you know we've got to play along too um, but more importantly, we also kind of want to recognize that we have customers of, of all different types. And um, as part of hospitality, you know, that's never changed. You know, a thousand years ago, if you were hosting a wedding, you would have people that of all different types. And as the host, it's your job to kind of try to make everybody feel comfortable. And so we try to carry on with that same type of approach um, and make this a, a safe and comfortable and non-judgmental place for people to be. And um, uh, we take uh, our health and the health of our, our employees and the health of our customers very seriously. So everything we do is going to be guided on that. And um, it'll be interesting, I guess, to see what happens as, you know, um, uh, there's going to be some maybe perhaps mis mixed messaging, you know, where there will be suggestions but without mandates and things. And, you know, we'll just parse our way through that. Um, we're, we're, not, um, we're not daunted. And we just have to try to remain as positive as we can. Yeah. 
Um, aside from the, the, the messaging um, uh, early on, I don't know how much that was caught for for the battery dies. Should be good. Okay. Um, we decided to also change how we engage with customers. It, it um, We used to have kind of what the standard, the old school way of hosting people in the tasting rooms. Everybody would come inside and you had this sort of, you know, this table, this bar, whatever, and people would walk up to you with their, you know, you give them a glass and, you know, you pour in their glass and, you know, maybe someone's standing next to them or they would go stand in the corner until they come up for the next one, and, you know, and when you pour, you'd tell them about it. Um, and that was just kind of the thing. And I'm sure it evolved from some guy in his, you know, in his barn, you know, um, when people would come to visit him and, you know, they're standing around, you'd pour. Um, uh, and obviously, if you look down at, at wine industries that, that uh, have been around a little bit longer, Napa Valley, you know, they adapted far before this, I think, just to sort of, um, competition and pressure and wanting to offer a more um, concierge style but um, this was the event that for us um, we're like okay well we're gonna be serving people outdoors and um, we're gonna do table service and we we kind of attacked this very early on so we recognized what we needed to do it excuse me <clears throat> and we were able to um, order those things and, and get those things before supply chains uh, were depleted and um, uh, very fortunate that way. But we, we got these little, you know, crafts that, you know, could, we could pour the wine into and, and bring it to people. And so that they're the ones, you know, there wasn't any contact between the body and a splashback. And it was just a safer way to engage people. Um, and then um, while you're there at the table, you can talk about the wine explain it they have a little bit of you know material that they could read about it as well um you know we set the tables apart so people would have a little more room which oddly it they're not that much further apart than they were anyways you know as it turns out people don't like to be sitting right next to each other uh anyways so um so doing table service and using the the carafes um uh, obviously, the the sanit sanitizing and, and and wearing masks and and all that stuff that's been part of everybody's regime for the last uh, eighteen months. Um, uh, you know that was part of uh, how we engage and and you know continues to be. Uh, there was uh, you know a couple months, I guess, of maskless. Uh, you know, okay, I guess CDC said you know you don't need to be wearing masks, but. Uh, We've gone back to, you know, um, the tasting room staff are, are masked, um, but um, outdoors, you know, you're outdoors and you can't taste wine through a mask. So at least for now, we're not going to ask people to taste wine through a mask, um, but uh, we'll just kind of continue to navigate that. I think the, the beauty of all this or the silver lining for us is this gave us a, a reason to dramatically change how we engaged with people on a day-to-day um, -day basis instead of just like really turning up the hospitality for events like this is a day-to-day -day thing now how we engage with people and um, people like that they prefer it um, it gives us more chance to tell them about the wine there's not this sort of like, oh, excuse me, sorry, as people, you know, some people would el literally elbow their way in for a pour. 
so glad to see that cattle call uh, style of, of wine tasting go away, at least here. We'll never go back to that. Um, so th that changed that aspect of, of our service. We had a couple of weeks, like I said, of, of downtime. Um, we did fun things on um, social media with some little digital things that we could interact with people that were lighthearted and engaging and kind of wine related, um, you know, that we put up on Instagram and I guess on Facebook, you know, some just goofy videos of, of us, you know, Jason and I doing fun things. And um, uh, if we had more time, we'd probably still do those things. But, you know, we're, we're all just so like, oh, you know, all the, the projects that we've had around here, everybody's sort of, uh, you know, working, um, working overtime to take advantage of, of the increase in business. And at some point, there'll be more people available, um, you know, and so we can bring on a larger staff and um, maybe go back to doing some of those cool videos. I don't know. They were fun. Kept our spirits up. Tell me about the your sort of initial impressions of, of Oregon wine industry and, and, and how, how how it's changed in your mind in the years you've been here. I thought you were going to say of, of Oregon. I grew up in the Mojave Desert, and so I remember that, the first, that too? first time uh, I, when I moved here, I was coming, you know, from, uh, from the east and drove through the gorge. And if that isn't like, uh, you know, a dramatic gateway I don't know I mean it I love the rain here and the lush green and um, I love this part of Oregon um, I think there's a certain amount of the the actual environment and the the climate here that um, impacts the, the the vibe of the industry I mean I don't know maybe maybe Pinot production in you know in in California is is not much different, but um, in the early days, uh, my early days, which are, are are not so long ago, um, I think there there it's it was just kind of getting outside of the you know it was shrugging off the mon paw. Uh, vestige and um, as trade organizations have, have popped up and as more uh, money has come into the area and, and more investment in, in the land um, and more interest in, in making you know brand Oregon wine and the, the trade organizations uh, have have distilled a message, you know, as the, the quality of the wine has just continues to improve, and then even like you know branch out a little bit in different expressions of, of the grape um, as younger winemakers uh, come in with different visions. Um, but the, the trade organizations have done a good job of messaging to the point where, to me, it it feels bigger and it, it has um, a lot more of a um, established uh, 
I don't know, moneyed. Like, I mean, it's an awful lot to invest in in a, in a project. And it, 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 even some of the bigger places didn't quite feel like that. I mean, King Estates was, I think that that was fairly opulent when he built that spot. Um, you know, uh, uh, Domain um, Juan, Do- Domain Serene, built some pretty big, you know, eye-popping places. Um, but those really aren't that unique now. There's there's a lot more of those places, and, and it now feels more like, you know, when you travel around... Um, you know, in Sonoma County and in Napa and in um you can see that um, you know, a more established industry has attracted um, you know, bigger and bigger investment and, and it, it's taking on a little bit of that feel. Um relatively speaking, we're still small peanuts compared to California and we don't have the history in, in some of the ancient uh, uh chateaus that you find in Europe um, but uh, you know so we retain I think a bit of our humble ag vibe and what I like to think still exists in the Willamette Valley is a certain chill friendly vibe and I, I'm, I'm not saying that those other wine industries and other places don't have that I certainly haven't spent enough time there to make any judgment on how the industry interacts with itself, but um, um, it still feels fairly like small in some ways. But um, there's uh, definitely an evolution that, that is um, occurring, and um, I don't think it's done growing. There's still land, people are still planting, so um, big events like you know, the last 18 months. That's gonna, you know, change things a little bit, but uh, I, don't, I don't know how, if it's, you know, gonna just grow to the point where it's tapped out, or uh, hopefully there will still be a, a degree of camaraderie. Um, you know, even just talking to, to winemakers in Washington and in California and in Italy and in France and in Australia, um, there's a certain camaraderie that comes with that. Um, I imagine it's like that with a lot of industries, you know, maybe a neurosurgeon from, you know, from California uh, has kind of similar interactions with a neurosurgeon from Turkey. I, I, I don't know. You know, just kind of a shared experience like, hey, you're a neurosurgeon? Me too. I still feel that here. Um, but I, I think that the, the messaging and... Um, the the exterior has gotten a, a, a lot more polished. So then what do you see as you look ahead for the future of the industry? Uh, I, I uh, Ironically, I think that um, the thing that is going to change the industry here more than anything is going to be, well, maybe it's weird pandemic type of stuff. I don't know, but I, I tend to think it's, uh, you know, those things can be managed. One would hope that people could come together to manage that. Um, I think that 
um, something that is much, much more challenging is is um, the direction of agriculture in general, not just here but everywhere. And I don't care who you are. I don't care what paper you've read or you know what crackpot science you've studied. Um, I think just about everybody can now at least agree that that climate is changing. So people can argue over what's causing it. It doesn't matter. Um, if you work in agriculture, you know it. You, you don't need um, television host to tell you something. You 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 see it, you feel it, you deal with it um, on a on a regular basis now. And I think that's going to be the thing that changes the industry here more than anything. And um, as I said earlier, I think grapevines are pretty adaptable. Um, so I don't know if they necessarily need to um, pivot too far from Pinot, but certainly the opportunity to grow other varietals here. Uh, in the Willamette, I mean, we've had that opportunity all over Oregon. There's all kinds of different climate in Oregon, and, um, but here more localized, uh, you know, where I am in the industry, I kind of get the sense that the the landscape here will change a little bit more due to climate, and that you're going to see more varietals being planted. You, you've seen for you know the better part of the last decade or even two decades more winemakers interested in making other varietals, you know, being located here in the Willamette and importing fruit from um, neighboring um, Appalachians. But, um, you know, you don't have to go far into the gorge to get a different weather system. Um, but I think that there are several appropriate varietals that could be planted here um, and done well. Particularly if somebody has a passion to do something like that, they'll work through the, the challenges of learning how to grow that varietal here. Um, so that's what I see is changing more than anything. Um, the hillside will probably, you'll see more and more vineyards. Um, I don't know if you'll see bigger shelf space allocated to local wines than you do already. I mean, it's pretty significant relative to, I mean, this is a fiercely loyal support local region to live in. Um, so the, the face of what people will see, you know, out as consumers, I don't think that's going to change as much as just maybe more polish and more of it. Um, but I think the biggest change is going to come with, um, is brand Oregon going to continue to be represented as Pinot? It's put us on the map, but, uh, um, we'll see. So what's next for you then, for you both personally and, and for your work here at, at Canis Feast? Um, try to just improve more on what we're doing. Continue to um, make improvements in the wine where we can. Continue to um, um, develop uh, cultivate a um, a fantastic spot for people to come you know that takes a lot of work 
and um, you know if as you bring new people on there's training involved and but I mean that's at the core of the business and and we want to continue to do that we've we've grown a lot in the last year and a half um, and we've kind of got to our capacity with our staff and our space to host more people you know I mean, weekdays that is, is where most of our business has grown and that's, that's great but um, I like our seller club events we can't really grow those without doing them back-to-back weekends and as you know the winemaker and as you know production team we can't continue to um, do all of that and do more uh, and support here so you know we've got to find ways to bring more people on you know get more people working and um, but uh, eventually you know we might need to expand our space along with expanding our staff um, it's hard to say it's I mean it's hard to make plans if you know like we know we want to grow and we can grow our production um, you know, we, we do a good amount of custom crush production because um, we have the capacity. Uh, so as we look to continue to grow our uh, brand and, and our wine production, you know, maybe change up our equipment to allow us to increase our, our capacity. But um, eventually we'll have to, you know, build another space or expand the one we have. So um, for me personally, um, I'm looking forward to working less. <laughs> um, it, it, this last year and a half has been um, very demanding um, physically, um, and I have a passion for for you know for what we do here. So um, it's it's easy to kind of keep going, but uh, you start to recognize you know your limit and. Um, you know age only works one way and, and so you know it's not like I'm going to suddenly have an increased capacity um, I generally take pretty good care of myself but um, you know at 50 I'm not I'm not the guy I was you know at 30 when I started and um, uh, you know there's got to be some way to transition but to you know, this is my home. It's hard for me to imagine going anywhere else and doing anything different. And so I'd like to figure out how, as I'm, as I'm aging, you know, how my role here will change. Um, but yeah, we, uh, hopefully we can just grow, grow this legacy and make this a place that just people really enjoy being and continue on with our, you know, our original mission, which is just to, provide people the opportunity to come together and, and enjoy each other's company. All right, so the questions that I have for you, is there anything that I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't, anything we didn't cover that we should have covered? Tap out. Um, <laughs> no, I, I mean, no, no. It's uh, a little bit longer than I thought, but uh, it's, it's fun to reflect. And um, I appreciate having the opportunity to um, have my story shared uh, um, or put put down there for um, some incredibly bored person to look at later and watch. <laughs> Pull out of the dusty basement and listen to it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Well, we really appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time and for your stories and for sharing with us. And uh, we'll go ahead and let you out. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.